I think we're on the cusp of starting to be able to tell new stories about a new conception of the good life. And I think that will emerge. I think part of the idea of a constellation is that you do start to pattern across individual perspectives, different people's work. And through these themes and patterns, you start to see that new story. Hello, welcome to On The Edge, a podcast about making unexpected connections everywhere and anywhere. My name is Roland Harwood, and in each episode, we speak to someone who's making sense of our increasingly connected world. In this conversation, I connected with Gemma Mortensen. Gemma is a social entrepreneur who recently launched new constellations to help people imagine and create a better, more beautiful future. Prior to that, she was Chief Global Officer at Change.org, a platform where over 200 million people worldwide have started a petition for change. She was also CEO of Crisis Action, which works to protect civilians from armed conflict. She's also co-founder and vice chair of More in Common, which seeks to address the underlying drivers of polarization and build a more inclusive society. Gemma and I talked about the art of listening the Silicon Valley worldview, and how we collectively take responsibility for guiding, channeling, and stewarding technology for good, not ill. The need to reclaim hope and optimism. We also talked about navigating and surfing life's ups and downs and what that means for us both right now. We began by talking about a handbook she was involved in creating a few years ago. So I started out by asking her, how can we build more creative coalitions. One of the things I guess I'm proudest of during that time at Christ Action, and it's something that's been continued and strengthened by my successes as, as CEOs, is like how much time and effort and energy we put into thinking about organisational culture. And the questions that we asked ourselves were, you know, what kind of leadership is needed if you are to serve a collective versus a territory, one organizational territory? And so there was a lot of emphasis put on, you know, high ambition, but low ego. How do you um, serve an outcome, not an organism, you know? Uh, and so that that handbook uh, codified a lot of the design thinking or principles, really, that had gone into how the organization worked, but what it takes to lead initiatives of those kinds. One of the things that I think is most unusual about crisis action is that you and everyone listening to this has been in situations where you've tried to do something big with lots of other people. And almost invariably, it gets extremely painful. Um, and almost invariably, that's because it's working on the basis of consensus. You know, there's the facilitation tries to get everyone to agree. And we all know what happens then. It gets watered down. And the thing that you're excited about jo- joining suddenly becomes mushy and grey and, you know, a bit pale and pallid. And you don't really want to do it anymore. And you don't see your part or role in it. So what Christ Action did was say, well, we're not going to do that. We're going to throw away consensus and we're going to work on the basis of opt-in. So there was this... this um, 
kind of like leadership adage that we adopted by the now CEO, Nicola, Nicola Reindorp, who came up with this, which is one of my favorite kind of sayings, which is this idea of listen and lead. So you first go out and you accept that you aren't the expert and you have to be humble and you have to get into the brains of everyone else who knows much more than you. But your job is to synthesize and to then be propositional, to come back and say, having listened to you all, having heard what you've all said, our you know, informed opinion is that this is the way forward. If If we were to pursue a strategy that looked like this and we were all to play these respective roles we're then going to end up having far far more impact than if we acted alone and at that point your partners so the possible coalition partners can either choose to opt in and say yes okay we're going to join you know on that on that basis or to opt out and the opting out then is very depersonalized you know it's just saying that's not for us but fantastic you know let's look to work together in the future and it just enables you know a cycling in and a cycling out rather than the kind of heavy stodge of consensus. Yeah, the heavy stodge of consensus. <laughs> that's a, a phrase that will sit in my stomach for some time, but that's a, a very familiar concept. And I guess wouldn't most leaders say that they listen and you know try and respond to what their customers or their employees or their stakeholders are saying? So how do you make that a deeply held commitment and way of working. I don't think many people would question that it's good to listen, but I don't think many people really do listen. It's a, it's a lost art in a noisy world. I think I think you're exactly right. I think listening is a lost art in a noisy world. And I was lucky enough at some point, you know, one leadership thing that you end up going on for one reason or another to be taught active listening. And it, I think it's one of the most helpful things I've ever been taught. And we taught that at Crisis Action. So we had this kind of 101 skills training and listening was one of the skills I think that is still taught. Um, and I think the other thing about crisis action is that it's it's an organisation that only has soft power. I guess the same could be said for many companies and, and, uh, and in politics as well. But um, there was no, because it was all about working with others outside of your organisation, um, there was no command and control possible. Um, it was only soft power. So um, either people would work with you probably for three reasons one because they could they could see it would work it was a good strategy second and why is it a good strategy because it's been informed by the best brains and people out there um because they could they trusted you and i think trust comes from listening uh, almost invariably um people are fine to say okay we accept that you've gone in a direction that's not the one that we advocated for but we, we i felt listened to therefore i feel respected therefore I want to work with you again. Um, and uh, and I think the, um, you know, the, the other thing was that people switched. It was, work, it was an organization that worked on crisis. So often it would be a crisis that emerged. Um, you know, for example, we're seeing the Israel-Gaza conflict at the moment. That would be a kind of prime case of the kind of thing that crisis action would mobilize around. You are literally not the expert. You know, you do not know. Uh, and so therefore, there's by necessity the need to listen. I think that's one of the things that's come up. I've, I've heard as a kind of strand in some of the other part of your podcast. But I'm a big believer in generalism. I think specialism is useful. Specialization is useful. But there is something in working with generalists where you know that you don't have deep expertise and therefore there has to be an openness and there has to be an ability to listen to others and glean and synthesize. And I think that's a, I think that is a skill, but um, you can't synthesize unless you've listened. So how, how did you then go from that 
to Silicon Valley, the heart of disruption and big tech and change.org. Can you just sort of complete the story or at least bring the story to that point? Yeah, so I spent 10 years at Christ Action um, and then felt that it was the right time for someone else to lead it. No, I, I didn't want to, you know, there was no reason to go. I loved it deeply, but it was the it was the right time for fresh leadership, I felt, and for myself. And um, and so, yes, I went to, uh, we moved with a young family to Silicon Valley. And I think really that was motivated, well, it was motivated by two things. Firstly, again, going back to this idea of how power works and having spent a lot of time, you know, in the halls of power, whether that was national government um, looking at its own foreign policy or in the multilateral centres of power, such as the UN or the European Commission or whatever it was. And then I think increasingly looking at how you engage populations around issues that aren't always easy to engage with. You know, these are really, really complex situations and looking at how technology and these kind of open platforms were increasingly being used to communicate with people to mobilize people etc and so it felt really like um I felt quite ignorant I didn't feel I understood technology I, I didn't feel I understood whether it was you know slightly emperor's new clothes and would would be a kind of flash in the pan and we'd get back to the old structural ways of doing it or whether this was something that you absolutely had to know and master and I, I think I'd obviously be in the latter camp now but but yeah so it was very much an interest in getting to know Silicon Valley as if it was the United Nations Security Council. I think I think that's definitely been borne out in um, how we see the power of technology over every aspect of our life today. And then, you know, the other thing was, you know, the people that I got to work with at Change.org were amazing. And um, uh, I was won over by them. And I think that's been a real story, a pattern, I guess, across what uh, ostensibly could be seen as quite an eclectic array of professional <laughs> choices is an amazing, amazing group of people that over in these different organisations I've got to work with. Uh, I admire the uh, eclectic array of professional choices and I'm always uh, drawn to people that have had a, a more squiggly career in that way. How is uh, Silicon Valley like the UN Security Council? It's not obvious to me, the connection. Well, I think um, we're moving out of a Westphalian age, we know that, where of the nation state and uh, who are the other great powers? The other great powers are include corporations of which the technology companies wield uh, as much influence, if not more arguably, than um, the traditional kind of status model of power. So in understanding how power works in the world today and the different networks and pathways of power, I think going to Silicon Valley to understand it culturally, not just structurally, was really important. And I was lucky enough to spend some time, for example, at, at Singularity University, which, I mean, you know, is a... It, is a particular worldview, but um, was really, 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 really interesting in terms of like um, stretching my own thinking to one, I think, just have excellent explanations of what was going on vis-a-vis -vis exponential technology and the impact it would have on our lives at every single level. But second of all, to see it as a political philosophy, to see it as, a, a, as an ideology, actually, and um, to be able to situate that you know, in the pantheon of other political ideologies and therefore have a, be able to take a view on it in that way. Yeah, I'm very, very, very grateful for that time spent there. It was um, hugely, hugely formative. I totally agree with the sort of um, assessment that sort of, you know, corporations wield great power. And I would assert that that is largely unchecked uh, by, um, by citizens, by people, 
And, you know, the sort of negative characterization is there's a handful of tech bros on the West Coast of the United States who are, you know, determining big things in our world without real any real accountability. I've always been a pragmatist in that we, I feel we need to engage with large multinational companies and work with them. And if you can do that, then the impact that potentially can have it is great. And that's not to replace government or charities or other organizations, but it's just in the mix. And it's often slightly overlooked or ignored. I don't know if you agree with that. But if you do, or even if you don't, how do you go about doing that? How do you shift, you know, these kind of big corporate institutions and power structures to be more responsible citizens and take into account more fully the the impact that they have on the world two thoughts come to mind that are you know separate but related i think the first you know in in your reflection on silicon valley it's really easy i think and you know i I say this as this is what i can recourse to unless i check myself to to think of the founders of all these huge tech companies a bit like james bond villains like in their lairs stroking their white cats you know having like had this prescient vision of how they wanted to you know control the universe and actually, I think um, a lot of the story of um, the growth of technology and the extent to which it has become, you know, it is like sinews. It is like part of our muscle structure, personally and socially, is that um, there has been the creation of something that nobody understood. Nobody saw where it was going to go. And it is, you know, one of perhaps the most important emergent system that teaches us that we are now part of these very complex, adaptive, constantly fluid systems that we have to learn how to inhabit and somehow have not control over, that's impossible to a large extent, but be able to guide and channel and steward. And how do we, you know, what does a world look like in which we take our collective responsibility seriously of how to guide and channel and steward technology for good and not for ill? And I would agree with you that the current structures that we have uh, are not capable of doing that at present. And then to the to the broader question um, or, or reflection on corporations, yes, I mean, I, I, I too am very much a pragmatist. And one of the, I mean, I guess we'll get onto the New Constellations project in a minute, but one of the motivations behind the New Constellations project is really being serious about, look at what we've got to do on every front. And if that is the case, then we had there has to be a, a phase of doing some very deep personal work, I think, to understand what it is that we have to do, but to understand what it is to do that with others who we may not have seen as allies before. Because in, unless we find ways of understanding each other and coming to a place of acknowledgement and acceptance that the transition only happens if we help each other playing different roles, but do that deeply and truly, we're not going to even get started. So I'm very, very interested at the moment in individuals within corporate structures who are committing themselves to enormous transitions and, you know, really understanding what that takes, what that takes in terms of the alchemy of personal commitment and kind of structural change. It's uh, it's going to be, you know, it's got to be one of the big themes of our times. I'd love to talk about new constellations in a minute, but I just wonder if we can just bridge the gap uh, with 
maybe a confession on my part, which is for 10 years, I was running a company founded and running a company called 100% Open, which was very idealistic and optimistic in the way it was framed. And it was all about the wonderful potential of the world has become connected and there's great ideas and opportunity anywhere you care to look, if only we build communities and networks. And it was brilliant and I loved it and I wouldn't change it for a second. And yet with Trump and Brexit, it's a bit of a cliche just to kind of lump those two things together. They're linked but different. I and many others had a rude awakening that, oh, there's this real dark side to this interconnected world that um, we now inhabit. And I I completely missed it. I Just personally, I, I was fully on the kind of Silicon Valley bandwagon thinking, this is brilliant. This is a new world. And we were riding the crest of a wave, which then sort of came crashing down, which for me then took me several years to figure out what I was going to do about that. And that ultimately meant creating this community called Liminal, which is a much more fluid, emergent thing, perhaps a little bit like new constellations. But yeah, I just wanted to, I guess, confess my own um, realization around some of these these tools. But I mean, you've had an even more dramatic journey from your time in Silicon Valley to where you are now. But yeah, just wonder if you can, whether you went through that kind of uh, realization or, or how, how that manifested for you? Um, well, I, I, I want to ask you all about that now. I'm going to have, a, I'll, I'll say a bit and then I'd love to hear a bit more about how you feel about that now, because, you know, like, well, I guess what, what if there was an awakening and a, realize, a realization that there was something that you felt was, I guess, a new model, a new way of doing things that recast a lot of the structures in ways that solved old problems. What, what, what opened your eyes? What was it that caused you to question that and how do you see it now? I think I'm still figuring it out if I'm perfectly honest with you. I don't have a grand vision and unifying theory and I'm not sure there will be one. Part of the reason why you know the next thing after 100% open is called liminal is because you know liminal is this kind of gray area, this in-between space between people, places and organizations and that feels like an appropriate word to describe kind of where I am in my life and career a little bit right now, but also much more broadly where a lot of people I talk to and a lot of organizations and institutions that I work with feels like we're in this kind of transition. And I'm not sure whether that is just the new normal is just this fluid evolution that we need to get used to and just develop a much more sort of agile mindset and skill set that goes with that constantly shifting sands or whether a new sort of concrete reality will will emerge you know in due course but I, I i can't see the shore yet so i don't i don't have an answer for that but i'm actively pushing away job offers offers to acquire companies things that would give me some personal security and concreteness because it doesn't feel like the right time or the right thing which is giving me a lot more um sort of uncertainty and vulnerability on a personal level but I'm also I just can't help myself I'm just curious and that's why I wanted to talk to you because it sounds like you've been on a sort of parallel albeit completely different but there's maybe some parallels between the the journeys that we've been on I don't I don't have a concrete answer but I'm I'm searching I I find comfort in the company of others who are in a similar position yeah here we are I think that's a beautiful answer and I, it resonates with me a lot on many levels. Um, and I think there's, well, I, I feel there's bravery and privilege in the decisions that you're making and, and not saying yes to those things. They're very, you know, there's a lot of social pressure to say yes to all of those things. 
And um, yeah, I, I think that's, you know, the, the way I look at it. And again, I definitely don't have the answers. And as you say, have deliberately moved towards something that is not fully formed deliberately in order to stay there for a while, actually, not to jump to the next patterned certainty, whatever that looks like. But um, it feels to me that I'm really drawn to explanations of a historic moment that reflect, I think, as you say, what people are feeling and experiencing on a very embodied level. And on the on the historic level, you know, whether it's thinkers like Carlotta Perez, who's now often often quoted a lot, but like this idea with, that with every technological revolution, you have a new conception of the good life. And that what we're experiencing is the end of one technological revolution, the beginning of the next, but there's a time lag until we find that new conception of the good life. And I think that fits in with, we've done an encounter, one of the kind of soundscapes of new constellations with a political scientist called Margaret Levy. And she says that um, the world works in these cycles of moral political economy, uh, economy. So Keynesianism is one, neoliberalism is one, mercantilism was one. And again, that we, we were experiencing the the dying days, they may be drawn out and protracted. We may not see, you know, totally the new one in our lifetimes. This is a long, a, you know, a, a long arc of time, but we're seeing the end of one system and the beginning of the other. And, and we are in that in-between phase. And she would define a moral political economy as um, a set of values that says how politics and the economy works and who it's set to serve. And, you know, she would say, I think also that we get to, um, like you know, like other people that I'm, I've read and I'm really interested in at the moment, you know, we get to, it's not a fait complete what that new set of values and ways and models are, that it's not as, it's not a fait complete what that is. We have agency in that. And coming back to the, the experience of self or of this moment, I think therefore, if you believe that, I, it's a belief, it's not a fact, I, I believe that is true in terms of where we are historically, then I think it is a rational decision, albeit a still countercultural decision, to decide to create and hold space in that in-between zone in order to do some of the letting go, but also to do some of the sense-making of what will become, because we don't yet know. And if we move towards the next thing too soon, I think all we'll get is a very, you know, just a just an iteration on the same. We'll get we'll get tweaks of the old, and and we, and we won't know what we need to move towards. And so, yeah, I, I, just to say that really, really resonates with me what what you said. And I guess going back to, you know, what happened, what's happened in the past few years that led me there. <laughs> I, I do. I got it. it. Was my wedding anniversary the other day? My husband um, is a very is a funny man, and he sent me a card. Which um, we've been married six years, and he sent me a, this card, and it just said, you know, thanks for a really calm and peaceful six years. Because basically, since the day since the day we got married, the world kind of fell apart, and, I thought, and so and so it was like one of these moments where you have cause to reflect on like this period. And I think we've moved house. Somebody said to me that, like, you know, your your the threat of a heart attack goes up something like eighty percent if you experience death, marriage, the birth of a child, moving house, moving jobs, moving countries. I think there's like six things, and then we realised that we'd experienced five five of them. Some of them in multiple, you know, multiple levels over a one year period, and then Joe. Joe Cox was killed and then Brexit happened and then Trump was elected and then the pandemic. I mean, you know, but it's been a crazy, crazy, crazy few years. And whereas before I lived in this world that was all about linear strategy and, you know, structural interpretations of power and very heady and very rational and very logical. And it was all about analysing foreign policy and, 
you know, why X wants to fight Y and how you influence this person who can choose to deploy a peacekeeping force. But it was, um, and I use this as a quality, not as a gender, it was very masculine. It drew on none of what I would call feminine. Again, I think there are, this is a quality, not a gender. There are many, many people uh, who are very feminine in their outlook and their leadership, but it didn't tap into what people's emotional inner landscape was. It didn't, I, I, I felt that actually we were being kind of straightjacketed into a way of being and doing and working that wasn't deep enough and didn't didn't fuse the inner and the outer enough. And I think when, when you experiment with ways of doing that, you get a completely different quality of connection and a quality of revelation from people and a quality of imagination from people. And so I think, you know, if I'm honest, I don't think I would have been brave enough to um, say, okay, this thing that I feel inside is a thing I need to go and just try. And it may be a spectacular failure, but I just need to do it. Unless there was this combination of kind of cataclysmic events and disruptive events, you know, whether on a big scale or a large scale, both personally and globally. And um, I I don't know how you felt, have felt over the past few years, you know, that this this calm calm tranquil waters of the past six years that we've all had but I, it's hard not to experience it and look down what feels sometimes like the barrel of a shotgun and like not want to just go for it whatever the going for it for you is and yeah I think I there was something in all of that that uh, I don't know whether it's caution to the wind or or just a sense of determination and conviction of like if not now, when? If not, you know, just just try it. Just try something different. It's okay. Like, what's the worst can happen? Yeah. And um, so far, so far, so good. So far, I'm enjoying it. But it's uh, yeah, it's pretty terrifying. I, I, it's uh, it's amazing how it's amazing how um, conditioned we are. I think it makes you really. It makes me realize how conformist I am. Even though people will probably look at what I'm doing at the moment and say, "Well, that's not very conformist at all." But it makes you. You really have to push yourself to kind of cross those lines. It's amazingly strong. Uh, or I have to push myself. I'm sure there are people out there who don't have to push themselves at all, who are wonderfully unconventional. But um, it's made me, it's taught me a lot about myself. And I don't know whether you've felt the same thing. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I wonder whether all that changed, you know, since you got married. Uh, happy anniversary, by the way. <laughs> um, there was so much going on that you almost had no choice but to, uh, you know, roll with the punches. I don't know if that's an an inappropriate phrase, but, you know, just that linear masculine mindset just wasn't going to cut it. You know, you just have to just kind of floating uh, in amongst all of it. And, but within that, in my last podcast chat with Margaret Heffernan, I don't know if you heard that, but she beautifully for me reframed uncertainty as something that gives you agency. Uncertainty is just kind of boring waiting for the train to come. And for me, sitting with uncertainty is necessary and important and you know not jumping to false certainties too soon and um i am keen to hear a bit more explicitly about new constellations because we haven't sort of looked at that in focus and i know you're still involved in more in common as well which just seems to be cropping up for me just recently just a number of different times in it what order would work for you so effectively new constellations is creating a space, I think it would also be accurately described as a kind of liminal space, definitely, where people can um, imagine and start to create a more beautiful future. So it's quite kind of open-ended. It's definitely, it's deliberately not directive. But what I'm interested in exploring with people is this idea of the transition that we need to go through. So 
we have this arc that we're using, which is, you know, a bit like the kind of hero's journey, but it, it starts off on the shore. Where are we now? What do we understand about what is around us? Where has that come from? What part have we played in the creation of what is now, uh, what is all around us? What are we responsible for? What have we been harmed by? What have others been harmed by? What are others responsible for? Really, really understanding the shore. And then this idea of getting ready for a journey, this idea that as we transition through this big historical moment, we we choose who we are. We can we can decide to journey in a way, uh, a particular way, um, just as we can choose to live or prepare and to work or be a friend in a particular way with certain qualities. And then we set out to sea, you know, to the vast endless expanse of nothingness. And I think it's really important that we all learn to experience being at sea, exactly as you're saying, that that is a skill and in that deep uncertainty has to come the ability to hold oneself calmly and stilly and open oneself to different possibilities and different stimuli. And we were told um, about by actually Kate Rayworth, who gave us some great and useful advice at the beginning of all of this, about this concept um, coming from Paul Goodman of the fertile void, this idea that the fertile void is... Um, a state of confusion where surprise is possible again. And I love that idea. It's like, how do we, what are the practices by which we can hold ourselves in a fertile void where it's not yet clear what are the shapes emerging through the fog? But that's a whole different set of skills and practices from the old linear strategy brain that you need to use and deploy to be able to do that well. And I feel part of the work of our generation is to learn how to do that well. And then there's the process of like, how do you discern and sense as much as see and think what shapes are emerging through the fog? How we call it astronomy, you know, how do you start to put names to those to see the patterns between them? And how do you find your way there? How do you return home to the here and now and start to build the new system from the old? And I'm really, really interested in you know, the different theories that tell us about that from many, many different disciplines, but also how we create those practices together with different, you know, with different communities. So that's the kind of quest. I think it's very much a, you know, it's not a project. It's a, it's a journey, you know, it's a journey of journeys. Um, and it's as much because it, it sounds similarly to you with, you know, liminal, it's like, it's what you need too, right? So and therefore, it's. I think we're now seeing lots of people creating spaces that reflect where they are and what they need and what they need to do in company and in community. I would. I would see this as one small contribution to the constellation of similar projects, of which yours is definitely, you know, a precursor. Really, I relate to that a great deal, g- given my own journey. Most most journeys, at least in story form have some kind of beginning middle and an end i'm just curious whether you have a sense of when you'll know if and how and when you'll know that you've arrived do you see a a distant shore yeah well i so it's interesting i when we started off i think we i what we were thinking of a distant shore what's the next shore but actually you know partly because of all the incredibly helpful public and private conversation around race and racial history like actually we don't we shouldn't you know we should we need to learn from those journeys of the past and we shouldn't create utopias on new in inverted commas shores because they may be new to us but they sh- surely won't be new to new to others who are already there so the work is to come home the work is to come home having seen and felt different possibility and to build that from where we are so i think it's a constant loop i think it's a constant iterative loop um of opening up and being in the void and you know experiencing new things having new intuitions new new ideas 
new understandings and then coming back and applying those and learning from the practical application, going back to this idea of, you know, the, the abstract and the practical, the practical abs- application of them, finding out what works, what doesn't work. Um, and then going back out, you know, into that open space again. So I think it's a constant loop in terms of, you know, as a project, uh, you know, will I be doing this in 100 years? I think we're on the cusp of starting to be able to tell new stories about a new conception of the good life, going back to this idea of Carlotta's. And what I and I think that will emerge. I think part of the the idea of a constellation is that you do start to pattern across individual um, models in you know different people's perspectives, different people's work, and and through these themes and patterns, you start to see that new story. You know that will come of its own accord. Uh, that that's got nothing to do. You know the new constellation project will not make that. That would be a ridiculous thing to claim. But it will be part. You know one small part, one small small contribution to a, a, a collective amorphous period of sense making. And I guess um, what is the end of that? I guess the the end is when you you feel that, that that desire to quest, that desire to figure out and explore, and I, when I say I, we, I mean, you know, the collective one, it feels somehow sated that there's a group of people who have been early, I don't know, adopters or experimenters are now more established and more main, main, mainstream and, and, and that there's, um, you know, it's, it's, it's time for a different group of people to, to find the next thing. I, th- I think these things come in kind of natural cycles and I've always believed rightly wrongly in uh in just the feeling of when of when a cycle has come to an end i i think there's yeah something very just beautiful in that kind of journey that you're going on so thank you for sharing some of that story i love that concept i saw it on your website of the fertile void i hadn't heard that before but yeah that that is very um yeah that's great and i think you've probably heard this or seen this but um i again was reminded recently of the fact that it's anxiety and excitement are very similar emotions physiologically. So the the effect on the body is almost identical. And rather than trying to suppress anxiety, to reframe it as excitement um, is a lot easier than sort of suppressing the nausea or what have you. And I think when it comes to uncertainty, myself and everybody, uh, uh, you know, is anxious about that but if we can allow ourselves to kind of go with it and and also potentially be a little bit excited about what might be around the next corner or or what have you then within that lies great agency and and joy and opportunity and and for me that's I guess that's what I'm I'm looking for and just to try and find some comfort with with that liminality that uncertainty um so um I feel like I've I've met a fellow traveler in this conversation and thank you I think it's imperative, the hope. I mean, I work with somebody who's um, Iris, who's one of the co-creators, co-founders of, of New Constellations. And, you know, her her kind of route into this is very much this idea that we are just surrounded by dystopian narratives. And actually, we need to reclaim hope and optimism, not in a kind of Pollyanna-ish, um, naive way. But if we can't feel it and see it and taste it, we can't build it. So we've got to go there properly. And that's also part of what we need to take seriously. So I, I think I completely agree with you. I think it's it's far too easy for that to be dismissed as, you know, fluffy, woolly stuff. But it's not. It's 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 really, really important part of all of this. And then maybe just to link that to more in common, because, you know, I think um, so more in common is you could not in many ways have two more different organizations. It's um, more in common is uh, which I was very privileged and lucky enough to co-found with some brilliant, brilliant people and um, but that they deserve the credit absolutely for what more income has come. I'm now I, I'm now on the board and kind of helped. I, I feel like I'm kind of was one of its midwives. But um, 
but I'm uh, I'm a, I'm an I'm an aunt rather than a parent. If you see what I mean to the organisation now. Um, but I lo- I love it passionately. I think it's so important because it's um, doing a form of research to really, 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 really get into the heart of political and social polarisation. But most importantly, the stuff that gets me really, really excited is to expose possible new majorities, new groups of people who don't see themselves as like each other, but actually share some common, very deeply held beliefs. And, you know, I think there's a, it's research can be kind of confronting. It can show, it showed me, for example, that I was part of a a real minority of people who saw the world like I do. And um, if you accept that, the way to change the world is not just tell people that you're right and how you see the the world. You need to start listening to others, (laughs) going back to the listening thing. And you need to, you know, again, it's the synthesis of like, what is the bedrock of common values from which we can all come up with the vision of the future that we're deeply excited by, but that corresponds to the things that we feel are deeply and truly important. That for me is like, if there's a crosshair of what we need to do, it's like, we need to look at that journey of consolations. We need to look at what those, that new constellation of hope and possibility is. But that story has to be told in a way that galvanises, inspires and speaks to the core values of that more in common majority. Thank you, Gemma. I really feel like I'm at a fellow traveller in this conversation about exploring and drawing new constellations. I really liked what Gemma said about looking at the need to collaborate with others who we may not have seen as allies before and holding the fertile void where surprise is possible again. And lastly, being on the cusp of being able to tell new stories of a good life. So you can find out a bit more about Gemma if you check out the links in the episode description. This podcast was brought to you by Liminal, a collective intelligence community. Thanks to all of our community members, clients, partners and patrons. This week, we welcome Hannah Lyons-Tsai and Jan Glass to the community. If you want to find out more about us, please check out www.weareliminal.co. Please do like and subscribe to the podcast and share it with others who might like it as well. Until next time, please keep on connecting people and ideas. If you do, you never know what might happen. Thank you and goodbye.